0: Good morning, everyone. Hope you haven't yet been tempted to turn your furnaces on with the 55 degree weather. Uh, we're in stewardship season. And uh, when you hear the word stewardship in church, you probably know that someone is going to talk about money, right? We talked about this last week, like the preacher's going to uh, try to manipulate you or make you feel guilty into giving uh, money to the church. Well, it is true that money is significantly related to stewardship. Very true. But what I want to do today is I want us to zoom out a little bit and look at stewardship from a much wider perspective, because if we narrow the idea of stewardship down to how much money we give to charity or to our church or to whatever, we're in danger of missing out on the big picture view that the Bible gives us regarding what it means to be a steward. There's uh, so much more to stewardship than what you do with your money or how much money you give away. Now, here's my thesis today. Stewardship, in fact, has more to do with our view of God, creation, and humanity than it does money itself. Shocking, I know. Uh, For us to understand stewardship from a biblical perspective, we need to go all the way back to the very first pages of the Bible. The first page, actually, probably, if your print's small enough. Because stewardship pops up right in the account of creation that we read in, you guessed it, Genesis chapter 1. Here's how it starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Listen, right here, the very first words of scripture tell us something about stewardship. God breathes out creation as a free act of his own will. He brings the material world into existence. So there's a great fundamental principle here related to stewardship, and that is this, life Is a gift. Life is a gift. All of life is a gift. There's nothing about our lives or the world that we live in that we can ultimately say, I achieved this. Because we have received our lives as a gift from the breath of a creator who desired to make a world that he could love. Now, here's the miraculous thing. This eternal, all-powerful creator decides that instead of robotically controlling the creatures he populates his universe with, he will give them abundant freedom to care for his world. Listen, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We've read those words a hundred times in a perfunctory way, not slowing down to ponder their gravity. God gives humans dominion over all the earth. He says, here's a world that's immense and beautiful and full of life. Take care of it. Have at it. Go for it. Have fun. Can you imagine being Adam and Eve, hearing that in that moment? You'd be like a deer in headlights. Huh? Who, who, who me? Take... Take care of all this, but you're the creator. Are you sure you want to give us that much freedom and responsibility? This um, part of scripture is what Christians refer to as the cultural mandate of the Bible, right? It's the command that God gives humans to make something of the world, to cultivate it, to draw out its potential and enjoy it. My daughter, two years old, loves Plato, right? Right? Um, And I remember the first time that we got her some Play-Doh and she pulled out that big green neon lump of stuff and she began uh, with fascination to smash it and to pull it apart and form things with it. I'm making bowls, she said when she first started playing with Play-Doh. I would speculate that the creative impulse that we find in ourselves, even as a child to shape things and make something of them, is because of this mandate that God gives his creatures in the book of Genesis. It's a creative impulse. He put it there so that we could artistically and freely make something of the world he gave us. Moving on in the passage in Genesis, we read this. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That Hebrew word for subdues, kibosh is the Hebrew word. It implies taking the earth's resources and making them beneficial, right? This is where we get the idea of technology. That we, we could take something in its raw form and, and work on it and put it together with other things and turn it into something helpful for human progress and flourishing, right? See, Genesis chapter 1 is a lot cooler than you thought it was, okay? Um, so we could say this. From the time of our origins, humans were called into a vocation of stewardship. We were given a mandate to care for the world and to use it for good. God entrusted that to us. He entrusted the world to us, desiring that we'd be creative and thoughtful and responsible and loving with the gift of life. And then what do we do, guys? What do we do? We mess it all up. Of course we do, right? We mess it all up. God gives Adam and Eve everything and he says, "Don't eat of this one tree. That's a no-no. That's wisdom that's only reserved for me, but you can have everything else." And what do they do? Oh, we want the tree. We want to eat it, we want to eat of the tree, right? And then the whole thing with the serpent happens and they decide that they're going to do the one thing God commanded them not to do. After having been given the whole world, they decide to, that they need to eat from this one little tree. Insanity, right? Insanity. But here's what we can say about the whole ordeal. The fall into sin and separation from God was an act of poor stewardship. It was an act of poor stewardship humans decided that they were going to use the world in a selfish way that was at odds with the creator's design and purpose. See, if this had never happened, we wouldn't even have to be having this conversation about stewardship right now, right? Because we'd all be perfect stewards. But humanity did indeed decide to approach the world in a selfish way. And that decision has tragically touched every human heart like an infectious outbreak. And that's why we're all in the predicament we're in today, which is this we are still bent toward poor stewardship of the things that God has given to us. And we see this story unfold throughout the Bible, right? We see we see it, things continue to go downhill and spiral out of control. Humans use their resources and each other and God selfishly to indulge their appetites instead of using the world to help each other flourish and to glorify the Creator. And we can trace it all back to the very first pages of the Bible. You see how much bigger the, the, the issue of stewardship is than just money? You see how much bigger it is? It's actually about how we relate to God. It's about how we relate to God, how we trust that what he gives us is enough and that he'll provide for our needs. There's an example of technology at at work in a good way. See, stewardship is about our vocation as humans. It's about nothing less than our vocation as humans. It's about how I relate to God in the world. Do I trust that God is good and that he won't ask of me things that will hurt me? Do I see creation as something that is meant to be cultivated and enjoyed and shared? Do I see it as a playground of self-indulgence where I have to get my hands on all that I can so I don't miss out or go without? So, what are we to do about this predicament that we find ourselves in? Well, to be quite honest with you, there's not a whole lot we can do. Our hearts are pretty messed up. And try as we might to do a little better and be a little better and make better decisions occasionally... The problem of having this infection that we call sin still lingers and inclines us towards poor stewardship. You see, holding on to the world in selfish ways, finding ourselves unable to take care of it in a way that blesses God and others is not due to a lack of training or personal development. It's a problem of the human heart. Taking a course on stewardship isn't going to solve the problem for the church. What we need is a whole new heart. What we need is a whole new heart. We need something that gets so deep into our bones and and shakes us out of our selfish stupor that we actually want to steward our lives and our resources in a healthy way. That's where stewardship begins. And here's where the gospel breaks into our reality. Here's where God himself comes into our lives. Apart from our initiative... He comes into our lives and takes hold of us, and he does the work that only he can do. St. Paul wrote, God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, that is, while we were still poor stewards of everything God gave us, Christ died for us. You see, like Bartimaeus in our gospel reading today, We have to actually take note of our blindness, right? Our inability to rightly steward the lives that God has given us and cry out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Friends, that's where all good stewardship begins. In in recognizing our need for the mercy of God to capture our hearts. That's where a reorientation of how we steward what God has given us begins with the power of the gospel to change our lives from the inside out. Listen to what one author says about this. He says, most of our problems in life come from a lack of proper orientation to the gospel. Pathologies in the church and sinful patterns in our individual lives ultimately stem from a failure to think through the deep implications of the gospel and to grasp and believe the gospel through and through. It's as simple as that. This is where good stewardship begins. We own up to the fact that we are poor stewards, not just of our money, but of our lives. We admit that we're implicated in the mess that Adam and Eve started when they decided to reject their vocation as stewards of the world and so ruptured their relationship with their creator. And yet, and yet we do not despair. Because God, in his love, has chosen not to leave us in the state we're in. He's chosen not to leave us there. He sent Jesus to do what we could not do for ourselves when he hung upon the cross for our sins. And when the reality of that costly sacrifice, it becomes when it becomes the center of your life, not just something out on the periphery that you think about occasionally, but it becomes the center of the life and the place from which you make decisions about everything in your life you'll actually want to be a good steward, right? Not, not only of your money, but of your time, of your relationships with others, of your prayer life, your health, your job, your family, everything. See, stewardship, again, it can't be reduced to how much money you give to your church. That's just one small part of it. It's actually about how your heart is oriented toward God based on what Jesus Christ has done for you. It's about choosing to live in a particular way because you trust in the goodness and kindness of God that He has proved He has for you. Let me end with this. Uh, Saint Paul was writing to a letter to the Corinthians and uh, this is a chur- uh, a, a, an early church, and he was encouraging them to be generous like other churches in the network of the ancient world who had been helping each other out in times of need, and he was encouraging them to be better about their giving uh, for the sake of supporting each other. Now, here's what he does. He doesn't set a particular standard of tithing or use guilt tactics to manipulate them. He asks them to think about how the gospel has changed their lives. And he points out That though Jesus had everything, the riches of being the God of all, he laid aside his glory to save the world from sin and death. He says this, For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Let us pray.